Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. My guest today falls into one of my favorite categories, politicians to keep an eye on because they're doing amazing things. Lorena Gonzalez represents California's 80th Assembly District in southern San Diego. She was first elected in 2013 and got into politics after years of working as a labor leader. She's a progressive Democrat who supports working and middle-class Californians with an impressive list of wins, including paid sick leave, overtime for farm workers, protecting janitorial workers against sexual assault, automatic voter registration at the DMV, diaper tax relief, the list goes on and on. Growing up, Assemblywoman Gonzalez saw firsthand what government can do or not do to help working-class families. She was raised by a single mom who put in long hours as a nurse to support Gonzalez and her two older brothers. Today, Lorena Gonzalez has five kids in a blended family with her husband, Nathan Fletcher. He's also in San Diego politics as a county supervisor. Gonzalez and Fletcher are both Democrats, but that wasn't always the case. He was a Republican. He was actually a Republican assembly member. And at the time, I was the head of the AFL-CIO in San Diego. And he was always a a much more moderate Republican. But through the process, when he ran unsuccessfully for mayor, we, we had a ton of discussions. This is before we started dating or anything. And he saw the light. He became a Democrat. Then we started dating. <laughs> then we got married. Well, that, that makes sense to me. The first thing I think about when I look at your biography and so forth, beyond your family, the thing that strikes me most is, my goodness, you have the trifecta of academic credentials here. Stanford undergrad, Georgetown Masters, UCLA Law School. You have the credentials to have done a lot of things for yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, you're certainly the whole Goldman Sachs material academically and everything. And yet... Labor organizer, state assembly, what is it? 
What was the calling for you that you wanted to forego taking care of yourself in order to take care of other people? I put a lot of that on my mom. So my mom for most of my life was a single mom. She just worked her ass off. I I don't know how else to put it. I don't ever remember her having a 40-hour work week. She worked 50, 60, 70 hours a week, multiple jobs at times, all to make life better, not just for me and my brothers, um, to give us an opportunity to go to college and do things, but also to make life better for her patients, for people she was serving. She taught me that in life, what actually matters isn't how much money you have in your bank account or or how many trips you get to go on, but how much you do to save the world. And we laugh now, my husband and I, and it's it's the question, do you want to savor the world or save the world? We're still on the save the world trajectory. At some point, you know, it's everybody's right to take a step back and savor the world a little, but there's just so much work to do. And I think that I saw that and I saw hardworking people and saw what they go through and just wanted to ensure that I could try to make other folks' lives a little easier. I moved to L.A., in 1983, for the first time to work, I lived in L.A., 83, 84, 85. And I remember coming to California then, and, and it was very much a dialogue and very much a part of the culture, was migrant workers. And mm-hmm. you know, the, California was the great state of the migrant worker and Chavez and all that legacy in the Central California thing. Now, in northern San Diego County, you have a migrant worker, a labor community, correct? We have small family farms in San Diego. When I say small family farms, they have somewhere between 25 and 50, maybe up to 100 farm workers. So it's not like the massive farms that you have in the Central Valley, but we do have small strawberry fields, flower fields, um, and and farm workers. Where your father worked, correct? Mm -hmm. Your father worked in the strawberry fields. Yeah. Was it a migrant worker community by and large there? It's less migratory, if you will. Um, it, it's more farm workers who, who stay there, but they're immigrants, primarily from Mexico. And they often stopped and made their homes in North San Diego County and San Diego County. We have avocado groves as well. So my father, like like most of the workers even today, his father was a bracero. So it was part of a program during the World War II to, to ensure we had enough farm workers. They brought individuals up from Mexico to work the farms at substandard wages and sent them back home. And so my grandfather's bracero. So my father, after hearing the stories, also wanted to come to the United States. Uh, so he came, he started in the strawberry fields in North San Diego County. Yeah, I asked because, and you say the preferred word is migratory workers, not migrant, correct? Well, there's different. Uh, they're considered immigrant or migrant workers, but I sometimes people think of probably in the 80s and, and there was a time when we had workers who would come and, and they might work in the fields in Imperial during certain seasons and then migrate north and work other seasons in, in the pistachio or almond fields, you know, and so they would mm-hmm. travel throughout California and all the way up to Washington for the apple season. And, and that was a little bit different than what we're seeing today when a lot of immigrants come in and work one farm. Now, my friend Christina Sinsoon, who once ran and I think co-founded the Workers' Defense Fund. She ran for the Senate in Texas this last election. And Christina Sinsoon has run organizations to protect migrant workers in Texas in the construction industry. People would, Mm -hmm. they would lose a limb. They would have their their Mm -hmm. hand chopped off in an accident and have no benefits and no resources to help them deal with their unemployment or whatever, or workers' compensation. So she worked very hard and very successfully to address that. Is that still a problem in California, whether it's in northern San Diego County or up north of there, that these workers lack the protections that other workers have? It is. And there. so you brought up construction. So let's take it in two different ways. And I think it's important for people to understand 
understand this. Farm workers in the United States don't have the same rights as other workers. There are two sets of workers way back in the FDR days, right, when they passed the Fair Labor Standards Act. There were two sets of workers that were taken out of that. The Fair Labor Standards Act is what gave us minimum wage, overtime protections, what we assume is kind of the workplace protections we have today. They took out farm workers and domestic workers. And if you think why, at the time, it was a vestige of slavery. So the work that was being done at that time by rural Southern African-Americans and then later by an influx of immigrants was taken out of basic protections, not even the right to organize. And so um, in California, we've done a lot to put those rights back in. So uh, 45 years ago, we created the ALRB, which allows farm workers to organize. We had minimum wage requirements. And just a few years ago, in fact, I, I passed the bill to ensure that farm workers also get overtime. We're the only state in the nation that has passed that. There's only a couple that allow farm workers to organize or pay minimum wage, even to this day. The construction trades. They have those protections, but what happens with a lot of our immigrant workforce in construction, in particular janitorial work, is employers just cheat the system. So they pay them under the table. They don't pay them the right benefits. They don't sign them up for workers' comp. So they're violating the law. But when it comes to farm workers and domestic workers, they don't even have to violate the law because there are so few laws for most of the country. Now, there's a variety of bills and so forth that you've authored or co authored, and I wanted to just hop through a couple of those because I find all this stuff very fascinating. Assembly Bill 5, requiring workers classified as employees rather than independent contractors for more labor protection. Take me through that. What's the difference? Well, over the last maybe decade, uh, a lot of employers have taken advantage of loopholes in the law and classified what would be traditional employees as independent contractors. And yes, it's cheaper for the employer, but the cost that it puts on both the employee and society as a large has to be taken into account. So when you're an independent contractor, the employer does not pay their portion of your Social Security or Medicare. That's 7.5%. You're responsible for the full 15% of those two things. They're not required to provide health care. They're not required to give you paid sick leave, paid family leave that we have in California. They don't have to provide you with workers' compensation. You don't have the right to a lot of civil rights and, and sexual harassment laws. As an independent contractor, you're viewed as an individual small business, not a worker of, of the company. So Obviously, there's a number of benefits, and most important during COVID, which we found is nobody's paying into unemployment insurance for you. So if you lose your job, you're on your own. So it is this idea, and I can imagine, and for some people, it, it's an important piece to be an independent contractor, to be a true small sole proprietor, a small business. And we have those. You know, you may be a plumber, or you might be a, a doctor that has your own business, and, and you're on your own. So, for example, a, a, a doctor as an independent contractor, he would then become whose employee to qualify for the benefits you're enumerating here? Well, in doing AB5, we took what was called in California a decision by the California State Supreme Court, Dynamex, and we applied that. It was going to be precedential, basically. And so we applied it to our entire labor code, and we said, but there will be exceptions. And we took the reasoning in the decision that said, if you have the ability to bargain for yourself, if you truly require a certain certificate, education, 
education, you have the ability to um, provide these things for yourself, we're less concerned, right? Because what happens is a doctor doesn't need these benefits necessarily. They self-insure, they self-provide them. And then if something goes wrong, society's not on the hook, right? It's not like some taxpayer-funded program. They can actually take care of themselves. If a janitor is classified as an independent contractor and doesn't have those benefits and they lose their job, they're going to end up on state-sponsored support. We, we don't want people to, to be homeless or go hungry, so we do provide a safety net, but they don't have somebody paying into the system. There's no social contract that was established. And those companies who are misclassifying workers are at a competitive advantage over companies who are abiding by the law. So this is just strengthening the existing law. And a lot of this came about because of the upswing of all these tech companies that think if you're hired through an app, you're an independent contractor. You're own business. It's, right. And that's yeah. what I'm curious about is that, is that let's say I have a building, an office building. Are you telling me that they will hire janitorial staff and call them independent contractors and not call them employees? So usually what would happen if you hired a building is you hire a janitorial company and you, you don't know, you have the building, you hire a company, that's all fine. But the people working for the company, they would be independent contractors when they're actually right. just employees who have been misclassified. Give us the most vivid example of who the bill was aimed to help. The bill was aimed to help delivery drivers for Uber, for example, right? Yep, I carry my Uber Eats bag. I'm being told where to go, when to go. I, I can't negotiate with Uber over my pay. I can't negotiate with Uber over whether or not I want to take a certain job. And uh, Uber says I'm a small business and I have to pay for my own expenses, for my own insurance. Um, I have to pay my own taxes. There's no payroll taxes taken out. Uber investors and Uber owners get very, very, very wealthy and billionaires and the workers making subminimum wage. Another area is in 2017. This one was very sensitive to me because I was involved tangentially, but I was part of drafting and circulating petitions in terms of lead paint in the schools of New York. And in 2017, you wrote a bill requiring all K-12 through schools to test their drinking water for lead. Did your concern for this issue in 2017 was the trigger that you're a mother? What was the genesis of that? Obviously, I, a lot of what I do is the fact that I am a mom and I'm a mom first, right? So I approach a lot of issues that we're facing as um, any mother would. Yes, you send your kids. I send my kids to public school. I, I hope and pray um, that they're safe, that nobody's going to gun them down, that nobody's going to um, poison them, that nobody's going to sexually abuse them, and that they'll get a good education at the same time. So there's a lot of trust we put into our schools. And we had a situation in my district where it, it was a really odd situation. A dog, they put water out and the dog they reacted to it. And so they ended up testing the water and um, the water had lead in it. And this is like New York City. We've we fought for years in my community in particular, which is a, a Latino working class community to replace lead paint in the houses. We took lead out of candy. We know that it poisons children and disproportionately poor children. And so when we found it in the water fountain at school, it was a, a shell shock for me because the one thing you send your kid to school and you're like, don't drink the sugary drinks, go have some water, go drink some water, drink from the water fountain, drink more, you know, and, and like how many times- They would have been better off drinking Diet Coke. Exactly. And I thought, oh my gosh, for my own kids, you, you think of that thought, like how many times do I say, okay, after PE, make sure you drink some water from the water fountain, you know, hydrate. Mm -hmm. Well, 
little did I know we're sending kids to poison themselves. So what we did is, and some of these schools are very, very old. And um, we said, it's time to test it for lead. And we got a lot of pushback. Everybody's like, well, is it makes sense to test? I'm like, how can we not test when we know that there's lead in the water? Who on earth would be opposed to testing the drinking water of your children in the school? Who? People who know that if it's positive, they're going to have to pay to replace the pipes. Right. What was the upshot of that in 2017? Did the testing lead to any remediation of the problem? Did they rip the pipes out of certain schools or what happened? Did they filter? Was filtration the answer? Filtration. Um, they replaced. They brought in water uh, stations to some. And what happened is there there had already been a, a number of school bonds that had passed, both statewide school bonds as well as local school bonds. And what happened is as soon as they started finding this, then, you know, when you pass a school bond, there's a lot of things you can spend it on. And, and San Diego Unified, for example, had Well, we had some football fields and some lighting that needed done. And we wanted, you know, some HVAC um, done in the classrooms, all important things. But if you find lead in the water, guess what? Replacing those water fountains gets to the top of the list in money that was already going to be spent. It becomes prioritized. So the world didn't end. The water has been tested and now it's being fixed. California Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez If listening to interviews with up-and-coming politicians gives you a sense of hope, be sure to check out my conversation with Texan Christina Sinsoon, who co-founded the Workers' Defense Project. I think that there's an image of Texas that people have that is not the true Texas story. When people think about Texas, they usually think about us in a singular way of people like my white grandfather, which was a cowboy. And the truth is that the state is, you know, you have a city like Houston. It's one of the most diverse cities in the entire country. You have one in three Texans that are immigrants or children of immigrants. Forty percent of the state's population is Latino. It's majority people of color at this point. Hear more of my conversation with Christina Sinsoon in our archives at heresthething.org. After the break, Lorena Gonzalez talks about cheerleaders and her fight to get California's biggest sports teams to pay them like the professionals they are. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. 
And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, chief marketing and growth officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. In 2018, Lorena Gonzalez co-authored a bill which put California on a path to generate 100% of its electricity from clean, carbon-neutral energy sources by 2045. She says the state is on track to meet its goal even sooner. We're already almost there, i got to be honest. We're going to um, get to 100% renewable quicker than we had imagined or hoped, but that's because we required it. By way of what? By way of large-scale solar farms that you're seeing go up, wind energy that you're seeing. We're exploring other forms, biomass, pup stations, things to provide renewable energy sources throughout California. Obviously, rooftop solar plays a, a role in that, but we have really adopted in California an approach that is getting us, on any given Saturday, about 80 to 90 percent of the energy coming through our grid is now coming from renewable sources. Well, the reason I mention this is because I was involved with a group of people who were, this was all theoretical, no, nothing was getting to the legislative phase, where we were saying how we wanted the federal government to withhold, you know, the classic withholding of transportation dollars. Mm -hmm. And there's always the threat of withholding those dollars if you don't this or that or this or that. And what we wanted to do was we wanted to demand that the states do the two following things, that any construction over a certain size over a certain square footage of any public building, college, dormitory, high school, airport, library, hospital, you name it, anything that was funded by state or local or federal dollars, that any refurbishment over a certain size and any new construction over a certain size, you would demand that they had some photovoltaic element built into mm -hmm. that construction, whether it was solar panels on the grounds, solar panels on the skin of the building or the roof of the building, something. 
And the second thing we wanted to demand was that any purchase of or any maintenance of fleet vehicles over a certain size and exempting emergency vehicles like fire and ambulance and, and police, because you can't have them have to plug in. You'd have to have hybrids there at best. But any of the fleet vehicles, you had to go fully electric, fully plug in by a certain year, or you weren't going to get the transportation dollars. Is there anything like that on the drawing board in California? I love that. But we're moving towards that naturally in California, not with withholding right. funds. Under our previous governor, Jerry Brown, he mandated that all new construction of houses have to have rooftop solar. Private homes? Private homes. New construction of private homes have to have rooftop solar. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of new homes being built. You have that now in California? Yeah, yeah, through executive order, for, through the governor. And so we we naturally have some requirements that were put in. Tom Steyer did an initiative a few years ago, Prop 39, which provided for schools to be able to put solar on their rooftop. You know, it's good green jobs and it's um, good for the environment and it pulls down um, the cost of their energy bills. So it it really did work. We had money available for that. We are going towards a a gasless society. We have goals um, that hopefully will be codified. I think in the next few years that we'll say by by this year, we're going to have all electric vehicles. But we have to do the hard work with that. It's not enough to say that. We've got to have more charging stations. I always give the example, my husband and I, we have an electric vehicle and we live in my district. It's one of the poorest districts in California. It's a poorest coastal district in California and there aren't charging stations. You know, luckily we can charge at work. He works at the county building. I work at the state building. Um, we, We have rooftop solar and we can charge at home. But a lot of apartments and multifamily complexes and working class communities don't have charging stations. And so as we move to electric vehicles, we really have to think about that piece as well, the infrastructure necessary to get us off of um, fossil fuels. How did you get involved with the cause of the cheerleaders in the NFL? Uh, Oh, God. I guess you lost lost your box seats at the Chargers game. I I was not a popular person at the Chargers, I'll tell you that. Uh, What happened, to be honest, is... You got to figure, I I was actually a Stanford cheerleader. So I was a cheerleader and a labor leader, right? I know how to use a bullhorn and a megaphone. Um, it's, It's a rare combination. So when I had read at the time, the Raiderettes, the the cheerleaders for the Raiders had started, a couple of them started a lawsuit against the Raiders for not paying them minimum wage because they were classified actually as independent contractors. And so I talked (laughs) to the attorneys and I'm an attorney. So I talked to their attorneys and I was like, this is outrageous. They're basically almost paying to do this fantastic job. Yes, it's a job women want. It's a job that that is um, respected to a certain extent, but it's still a job. Everybody else on the football field, it doesn't matter if you're the physical trainer. It doesn't matter if you're the person picking up the trash. It doesn't matter if you're selling the peanuts, if you're the coach, if you're the player, you're all being paid like an employee. And these cheerleaders were being um, given a stipend, being penalized. They, they signed an employment contract with the NFL. So I said, this is easy. We're going to make them by code employees so that they have basic labor protections in California. And so I remember the first time I introduced it. And of course, a lot of journalists were more fascinated with the fact that I was a cheerleader at Stanford in one of those pictures. And so we were like, all right, here's a picture. Now can we talk about this really important issue? And um, oh, God. And then my favorite part of the story is having to go to then Governor Jerry Brown. And he's, anyone who knows, he's a little, I don't want to say crotchety. You just never quite know what you would get with He's with a no-nonsense guy. He's no, a no-nonsense no guy. No-nonsense. And I mean, I'm like, oh, God, I got to talk to him about cheerleaders. 
Like, this is going to. And so I said, um, we were at a dinner together and I said, Governor, when you have a chance, I want to talk to you about this bill I'm working on. It has to do with professional cheerleaders. And he said, I was a cheerleader. And I was like, are you kidding me? He apparently. As luck would have it. He was a cheerleader in college or high school. And so I was like, oh, I think I'm going to get this one. But we did. I'm very proud of that. So what was that path? Was it directed at an individual team? Or was this league-wide? You wanted the NFL to recognize. Was the situation in San Diego duplicated at all the NFL teams? Oh, well, none of them were getting paid? None of the NFL cheerleaders to this day, only in California, do they have rights as an employee. There was a bill actually introduced in New York as well, but it never made it through. So it was any professional sports teams in California, the dancers or cheerleaders have to be treated and have the basic labor protections of an employee. So that includes, of course, the the Chargers, the Rams, the Lakers. It was basketball and football, the 49ers. So now I was going to ask about that because I go to Knicks games or I used to, and those women were out there not getting paid either. No, and a lot of them. But they are now. Only in California. There's a national fight still against the NFL. There have been a lot of lawsuits. A lot of the teams have lost lawsuits, and um, there's been a lot more attention to it. There's a couple documentaries and issues pertaining to it. We'd like to see it, of course, on the national level. So how did the lawsuit work in California and not in the other states? Well, it was settled. And so in, in other states, it's been settled as well. But so often when you settle these lawsuits on worker issues, the judge accepts a settlement. So it makes whole the workers who are suing, but it doesn't force companies to fix the problem. So it's kind of like an ongoing invitation to sue without fixing the problem. And that's why sometimes you need legislation to come in and say, all right, nobody can do this. This is enough. Now, in 2019, you passed legislation that extends the statute of limitations for survivors of sexual abuse who are seeking justice in court. Now, I think most of our listeners know what a statute of limitations is, but I want you to explain as an attorney the reason for a statute of limitations in most cases. And there are some crimes, I believe, like murder, where there is no statute of limitations. But where there is a statute of limitations in place, why is there one? There's often a statute for a variety of reasons. One, um, you can't preserve evidence. So, you know, I could say, hey, when 20 years ago, you stole this TV from me. Well, that TV doesn't exist. Witnesses probably don't exist. It's hard to pin that down. People die. They move away. Exactly. Yeah. Or, or they forget. I mean, quite frankly, you know, I can't remember... 20 years ago, probably. So to have integrity in the trial of the witnesses, you need to do it in a certain time frame. Mm -hmm. But childhood sexual assault is unique. So there's some things that made it unique and made the statute of limitations very damaging. Number one, so often the primary witness, the child themselves, uh, suppresses it, basically, doesn't think about it, doesn't um, come to terms with it. And it's until later in life when they're dealing with uh, a failed marriage or depression that it comes out. And so sometimes, you know, that's the primary witness is a person who was assaulted, if you will. And what we had with childhood sexual assault is actually a lot of people knew it was happening. We actually have official documents like the church, the Boy Scouts, they actually had complaints that were filed that were put away that there still exist. And you still need all of this proof, if you will, to establish a case. But it allows time to have passed and yet still victims to get some sort of justice. 
I'm going to go back to you as a mom. Mm-hmm. Um, Because you do have five kids, correct? Five? We we have five together. It's a blended family, but our two youngest are adopted. And then I have an 18-year-old who is just graduated and headed to college. I'm a stepmother to a 22-year-old who's deployed in the Marines. And then I have a 25-year-old, and she works in the industry a little, kind of working her way, clawing her way up from a... I think she's an art coordinator now. What does she want to do? She's on the production side. She works for Netflix. What do you want for your kids in this world? You know, my children, probably like yours, I feel in some ways are really lucky. They were born into a privilege I could have never imagined. They will never know for want. They will always have health care. And that's a good thing. I want them to continue to have the basics in life that allow them to be happy. So for me, I think, what would make my kids happy? And I don't know. I have a 10-year-old, a 13-year-old, an 18-year-old, 22, 25. I want them to be able to love and marry whoever they want to love and marry. I want them to be able to work hard and get paid a decent living. I want them to be able to have health care. I want them to have air to breathe. I want them to be able to choose a life for themselves that brings them joy. And that's all it comes down to. My mom expected, and, and she's passed, but in a way she expected so much out of me. She expected me to make the world better for other people. I think I'm to a point where I want them to contribute positively to the world, and I think they'll do that if they're happy. And and all the things that we work on is to get them a society where they can live and let live and enjoy life and hopefully put a hand out and help other people as well. California Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez. If you're enjoying this conversation, be sure to subscribe to Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. When we come back, Lorena Gonzalez pushes back against rumors of an exodus among California's wealthiest to states with lower income taxes. Gonzalez makes the case for why they should stay. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share 
other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing. California Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez speaks her mind. In a tweet from May 2020, she had some choice words for Elon Musk after she found out he was moving his Tesla plant from California to Texas. Look, my mouth gets me in trouble. I'd lie if I said otherwise. I I say exactly what I think and what I mean. But you have to look in context. Elon Musk has made a crap load of money off of California taxpayers. And if people don't understand why, it's because everything he makes is subsidized by taxpayers. So the Teslas that flew off the market, those all had taxpayer rebates on $100,000 cars. I mean, people who didn't need the rebates were given them because we want to encourage electric vehicles. His solar panels and solar storage have been highly subsidized by the state of California. So taxpayers have helped make him a billionaire in California. We have really supported yeah. Elon Musk. Bingo. And coming from the labor movement, he hasn't really been too good on worker issues. So he's been slapped down by the NLRB. He's he's anti-worker. He's had really some big safety problems in his facility. So I've always been a little irked. Like, here we are giving you taxpayer dollars, and you can't even abide by the law when it comes to union organizing. That upsets me. Well, during the pandemic, he decided, forget it. I don't like these orders. I'm going to open up my factory in Fremont. It doesn't matter what the county public health officer is saying. And you're talking about an area where we had tons of Latinos dying from COVID. We had the spread. It was at roaring at the time. So he brings back his workers and he says, if anyone stops him, he's going to take his jobs to Texas. I mean, at some point, look, every elected official in California should be saying, I won't say it here, but yeah. you know, go, go away, Elon Musk. Bon voyage, Elon Musk. <laughs> there is a point where, where as elected officials, and this kills me, it doesn't matter who it is who is getting things from us, right? Leadership is also being able to make those tough decisions and say, hey, all right, we like your product. We like what you're doing for the environment. But by the way, we've got rules and we're going to it doesn't matter who you are. You're going to stick by the rules, too. And, and it, it irks me that so um, many of our rules in, in California, in this nation, we apply them disproportionately to communities like mine and not to billionaires like Elon Musk. And I think we have to be stronger about that. He has a lot of fans on uh, Twitter and I got a lot of <laughs> on that. comes with the territory. It does. 
I'm assuming that California is similar to New York, where the COVID has driven some measurable amount of businesses out of the state, correct? It's a high-tech state. New, New York is really struggling. I've got friends of mine who, I mean, people that I never dreamed, I mean, in the ebb and flow of the fiscal health of New York, now when the city most needs the money, they're going to have the lowest income tax revenue. They're raising taxes on everybody. It's really, really painful. Mm. But a very, very measurable and healthy number of people, at least from my optics, who I never dreamed they would leave New York as their home. They might keep a little pied a terre there, but who New York was their home. New York City was their home. And they were willing, maybe not happy, but willing to pay the taxes because New York was home. They're gone. They sold their homes, a huge apartment, moved to Florida, moved to, they moved, they, so then they figured, while I'm going to move, I'm going to go all the way. I'm going to move to a no-tax state. So, they, I mean, people who you'd say, they'd rather die than live in Florida. They're going to Florida. Are the same problem in California, are people leaving? Well, th- I think that that's a storyline. I think if you look at the numbers, that that doesn't quite add up. And I don't know exactly what's happening in New York, but I will say California had its best budget year ever because we have created more billionaires during this pandemic than ever before. And so, so unfortunately, mm. what we're facing in California, there's a lot of talk about the exodus, but it, it's not quite as real as as people like to say when you look at the right. actual numbers. And in fact, our, our income tax um, revenues are out of control. They're so healthy because of the very rich Great. that we have. Good for you. But income inequality has become a real threat. So as we continue to build billionaires in California and Silicon Valley continues to create new billionaires, we've got to figure out how we take care of people who just work for a living, right? The people who service the tourism industry, the people who serve people fast food, the the folks who really are just struggling to get by. Like I always say, the people who inspired me, the reason I am in politics is because you have folks who are on their feet working 40, 60 hours a week, multiple jobs, especially in immigrant communities like mine. And, and the fact that they cannot afford housing or to uh, put a little money away for retirement or to send their kid to college is, is something we've got to address. So yeah, mm-hmm. I get it. Move to a no-tax state, go ahead and, and you get what you pay for. Look, I don't want to be in Florida where building codes are and and their approach to climate change is so bad that that we have a mass catastrophe happening you know i'll pay my property taxes i just i want to make sure that we have an equitable society for everybody not just those at the top i want to live in a state that has good building codes yeah god it's just devastating just a brief question why secretary of state have you announced or you don't want to say that on the air I did announce. Then we had a little bit. I actually, it's on hold because I announced a few years ago early. There have ne- there's never been a Latina in statewide office, and so it, it mm-hmm. is the only demographic in California that has never achieved uh, statewide office. So we announced, we raised money, and then our Secretary of State Alex Padilla was appointed by the governor to be a U.S. senator, and the governor appointed Dr. Shirley Weber, an African American icon, to the position of Secretary of State. So my plans are a little on hold. And until she finishes up now, it won't be an open seat in 2022 like I had hoped. But the reason I am interested in Secretary of State, and I've done a lot of work on voting. In fact, I authored the bill to, to have automatic registration, and we are now at 88% registered voters. I think the more mm. people who vote, the more we open up democracy in, in, in California, in the world, you have elected officials who reflect 
real people. You have people who remember what it's like to have a mom who works 60 hours a week. You elect people who remember what it's like to talk to to the workers at the bus stop uh, on the way to school, you know, remember what it's like to have a father who immigrated here and whose papers um, don't quite match things the way they should. So when you have a broader electorate, you have more diverse elected officials, and then you have better policy. So that's that's why I want to be Secretary of State eventually. And uh and continue to push the idea of having as many people participate in elections as possible. Well, thank you for that update. Are you going to go back to the assembly and run again next year? Or are you going to run for another office? I'm running uh, for re-election in 2022, and and we're seeing what's out there. I mean, there's congressional seats or in the future. I don't know. We have redistricting right now. There's statewide seats. The bottom line is this, and, and I talk about this a lot. Latinas are 20% of the population in California, right? Latinos overall are 40%, but Latinas, female Latinos are 20% of the population. And we are the most underrepresented in every form of life, including elected office. And so my job and my goal is to continue to to push for regular folks and to also um, serve as hopefully a time when when I won't be the first Latina to do or serve as something. But we've got to continue to push that. Well. Let me just say this, because we wrap up, and I really mean this, Jennifer. You are such an amazing woman. And all your credentials and your accomplishments and your passion, you're somebody who, it's still your task to save the world, I'm afraid, and not savor the world. You have to, you have to postpone the savoring of the world a little bit longer, you and your husband. You have to keep going. There's no turning back. You've got to keep running and keep doing this great work you're doing. You've been doing amazing work, and you are such a role model. And we wanted you on because people spoke so highly of you. Andra Day, the actress, was talking about the work you did with that school down there. Robert E. Lee. <laughs> Yeah, in San Diego. You can imagine, yes, because we care about our history. You had the name of the school changed. You and other people were working on that cause? I did. And this was before we kind of um, started attacking the Confederate name issue. So I, I got to see what people said before they realized it was politically incorrect. But you don't have a school in San Diego named after Robert E. Lee in the 1950s, the same year that we ended segregation in, in the schools and, and it not be tied to racism. So uh, that school today is over 90 percent kids of color. And they finally don't have to go to a school that is named after uh, not just the biggest trade in our in our history, but somebody who was fighting to keep people segregated and keep people enslaved. Well, what an honor it is to get to meet you. I know your time is valuable. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. California Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's the Thing is brought to you by iHeartRadio. We're produced by Kathleen Russo, Kerry Donahue, and Zach McNeese. Our engineer is Frank Imperial. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. 
I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math and Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math and Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Mini Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers.